You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. We typically do not think of God as one who has problems. We have problems. We have all kinds of problems. We have relationship problems. We have problems with our families, problems at work. We have all sorts of problems. You might be thinking through the list of problems that you have. We have health problems. But not God, right? God is perfect. God doesn't have problems. God is perfect, and His perfection means He's free from problems. He's glorious, and He's majestic, and He is marked by beauty and splendor and power. How can someone with infinite power have any problems? There's one thing God is not supposed to have, and that one thing is a problem, isn't it? And yet if we read through the narrative of Scripture and kind of take the big picture in mind, we find that God has a very serious problem. You see, He's made two commitments that appear to be both something that He can do. He's made two commitments that appear to be in conflict. One is a promise. And the other is a standard. And if He keeps the promise He's made, it's going to be very difficult to maintain the standard of character that He holds. And if He keeps that standard of character, if He maintains His standard, it looks like He's going to have to break His promise. And so God has a problem. And that big story gets summed up in Romans chapter 3. Paul sets forth, forth this This catch-22 that God has gotten himself into. It's his fault. He got himself into this problem. And the question is, like, if God's got himself into this problem, if he can't keep his promise and maintain his character, that standard, how's he going to get out of his problem? And Paul wants the Romans to know, and he wants us to know. And in the midst of this problem, God will do what it takes to do what is right. Bottom line, forever, when it comes to God, He will do what it takes to do what is right. So what are the problem? What's the problem? The story of Israel begins with a guy named Abraham. You've got to back up centuries to get the beginning of the story. And God's relationship to Abraham begins with a promise. He calls Abraham... He says, Abraham, I want to be your God. I want you to belong to me. And I'm going to use your family to bless the nations. I'm going to give you a family. I'm going to give them a land. And that family is going to be my instrument, my people who I've called to bless every family in the world. Now, there was a problem from the start because Abraham didn't have any children, and he was way too old to be having children. And so God does what he has to do to do what's right, doesn't he? He 
keeps his promise. And even though Abraham is up in years and his wife is up in years and neither one of them are able to have children, instead God works and he gives them a child and this is a child of the promise and this child is a demonstration of God's faithfulness. He makes a promise. It looks like it's going to be hard to keep the promise, but God does what it takes to keep his word, doesn't he? He gives Abraham a child, and as you read through the story, his family becomes more than the stars in the sky, as God told him it would be. And there's a promise. I'm going to use your family to bless the nations. But God also has a standard, and that standard is understood in his commitment to justice. He's perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. And anyone who is perfectly righteous cannot let unrighteousness or injustice or sin just be swept under the rug. Right? It's not just to ignore injustice. It's not right to ignore unrighteousness. It's not holy to ignore sin. And so God has to do what's right. He does what it takes to do what He ought to do. He does what He takes to do what is right. And so if He's going to be just, He has to do what? Condemn sin. And that's the problem that Paul articulates in the first half of Romans 3. He's got this kind of conversation going on. It would have been nice if Paul had used uh, the sorts of techniques that modern authors use when they're running a narrative where you have one person in the narrative raise a question and there's some quote marks and so-and-so said and then you start a new paragraph for the new speaker. My kids are learning this in their writing classes if you're writing kind of a narrative new paragraph for every new person who's contributing, but Paul just sort of jams it all together, questions and answers, and there's kind of a conversation, and it would have been nice if he'd helped us out a little bit. But if you go in, you can kind of see one person, this kind of imaginary questioner is raising some, hey, I don't understand what's going on, how does this work, and then he comes back with his answers. And one of the first questions is, what advantage has the Jew? And the question is raised because Paul has spent chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through the end of chapter 2, talking about how the Jewish people are under sin. Like They have God's law, and God's law tells them what an upright life should look like, and yet they've sinned against God, and the law says if you sin against me, you're condemned. And we know the story, right? You can go all the way back in time after time after time. You've got God, He gives the Hebrew people His law, and what you to be my people, and I want to be your God, and I want this covenant with you, and yes, God, we want that, we're here for you. And then, very short time later, they've broken the covenant. Renew the covenant. God, we love you, we, want, we repent, we want to be your people, we want you to be our God. Very short time later, they've broken the covenant. Just read through the Old Testament again and again and again. You see that pattern, it just happens again, over and over and over and you kind of get this rehearsal of that in Romans chapter 2, that even though, God, even though God has called this people and given them his covenant, they have rebelled against him, and the consequences of that 
is God is just. He does what's right. He can't ignore sin, even if it's the sin of his own people. He can't say, well, they're my people. I'm just going to look the other way or sweep it under the rug. God can't do that. And so the question comes up, well, like, so what's in it for them? Like, what advantage do they have if they're condemned just like everyone else? What's the advantage? And Paul answers, well, there are advantages. They've been entrusted with the oracles of God. God has spoken through them. He's given them the dignity of being his people. He rescued them from slavery. He gave them his covenant. He is revealing his name to the nations through this people. He has entr- they've been entrusted with God's word. And yet, they were unfaithful, verse 3. And then here's the crucial question. What if some were unfaithful? Romans 3, verse 3. Does their faithlessness, their sin, nullify God's faithfulness? That's the question, isn't it? God promised this family that He would use them as His instrument To bless the nations. He promised them. He would use them as His instrument to bring redemption into the world and to fill the world with His beauty and His glory and His saving power. He promised Abraham that He would use His family to save the world. But they have been unfaithful. And they deserve condemnation. They deserve hell. How are you going to bless the nations with Abraham's family if they're all in hell? God's got a problem. And the problem gets articulated if you move on down to Verse 5, if our injustice serves to confirm the justice of God, what should we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. How could God judge the world? So you have these two aspects of God. Is He faithful to His people? Is He faithful to the promise He made to Abraham, to the patriarchs? Is He going to keep His promise to bless the nations through Abraham's family? Or is He going to be just? Is He going to compromise His justice by excusing their sin? Right? If He keeps His promise, He's got to ignore their sin. And if He condemns them for sin, He can't keep His promise. Catch 22, God, what you going to do? And Paul wants us to know, God will do what it takes to do what is right. He will maintain his justice, and he will keep his promise. And he's so committed to doing what he ought to do, he will do it even if it hurts him. He's so committed to doing what's right, he's so committed to keeping his promise and maintaining his justice, that he will do it even if it costs him. Even if it means he has to bleed. Romans 3.21 But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. God's in a bind. 
He can't keep his problem, promise and condemn sin at the same time. What's he going to do? Paul says, now God has revealed this aspect of his character whereby he always does what is right. His righteousness, he keeps his promises, he maintains his character. You got this problem, is God unjust? Is he going to ignore sin in Abraham's family? Or is he unfaithful? Is he going to break his promise? And the answer is, yes. He will keep his promise, he will maintain his justice. And this declaration that his righteousness is being revealed is Paul's, yes! He's faithful to his promise, yes! He's faithful to his character, yes! His righteousness is being revealed, and it's being revealed in a new way. It's testified, we're told, by the law and the prophets, like you should have seen this coming if you've been paying attention. But, it's, but there's a new revelation, there's a new movement, there's a new thing that he's doing. And what is it? How does he maintain? How does he get out of the catch-22? How does he keep his promise and condemn sin? But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets, Old Testament. Verse 22, the righteousness of God is being revealed through the faith of Jesus Christ. So in Jesus, God reveals the reality that he keeps his promise to Abraham and condemns sin. What does it look like? Just listen to these verses again. They're well-known, and sometimes it's easy to kind of take well-known verses and assume we know what's going on and just kind of rush through it, but we framed it up. We understand the question, how's God going to do what's right on both accounts, keep his promise, condemn sin? With that framework in mind, just listen to what is said. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to everyone who believes. For there's no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by His blood, effective through faith, he did this to show his righteousness. Right, again, the question is, is God righteous? Does he maintain his standard, the standard of his character, and will he keep his promise? There's two character issues, and they appear to be in conflict. And Paul says, he, did, he, he revealed his righteousness in Jesus, and he did it to demonstrate that he maintains his character of his justice and keeps his promise. He did it to show his righteousness. He did it to show that he keeps his promises. He did it to show that he takes sin seriously. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed, and it was to prove at the present time, in Jesus that he himself is righteous, he keeps his promises, and he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. He's righteous, he condemns sin, and he, has, he justifies those who trust in Jesus. He 
He saves the world through Abraham's family. So let's flesh it out a little bit. Jesus, we are told, is a sacrifice of atonement. All have sinned, Jews, Gentiles. Gentiles is the word for all of us, as, as far as I know anyway. So if you're a Jewish person like Paul in the first century, you got the Jews and you got everybody else, and everybody else is lumped into this one big category called Gentiles. And all have transgressed. Romans chapter 1, the Gentiles, the fundamental sin is idolatry. Romans chapter 2, the Jews, despite the fact that God has made them his own people, they have worshipped other gods. They have exchanged the vocation that he's given them. All are under sin. And that reality cannot be ignored by God. Simply can't. He takes it seriously. God takes my sin with the utmost seriousness. And so Jesus comes. And in Jesus, God takes God's wrath on God's self. We get a little upset with this language of God's wrath. It's kind of because we, we kind of imagine an angry person. Anybody know any angry people? Don't look around. You know, maybe uh, an abusive parent. Maybe a coworker who just loses it without reason. We kind of take this picture we have of human wrath and we blow it up to infinite proportions, don't we? And we think, well, if that's what God's like, man, I mean, I don't want anything to, how offensive is that? I don't want to, oh, I don't like that. I don't want to get involved in that. I don't want to have anything to do with a God who's like that person in my life who is just recklessly furious and unhinged. But that's not at all what Scripture means when it talks about God's wrath. God's wrath is his consistent, just, good opposition to everything that seeks to destroy his people and his world. God's wrath is his consistent, just, measured, holy, good opposition to everything that seeks to destroy what he has made. And here's the thing. When Jesus shows up, God in the flesh, Jesus takes his own wrath on himself. And this ain't some kind of divine child abuse where the Father in heaven is just so furious. He just, gotta let it off. And so he dumps all this fury on Jesus like some unhinged psychopath like that's not what's going on right because we're trinitarian god is one father son and holy spirit are the father is god the son is god and the spirit is god and when jesus takes the consequences of our sin right all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god 
They are justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by His blood. When His blood is shed, when He does the work of atonement, it's not this like father versus son craziness. It is God taking the consequences of our sin on God's self. Just let that sink in for a second. When God formed Adam and breathed the breath of life into him, at that moment he knew that this project, that Adam was going to be unfaithful with the trust that had been put in him. And Adam's going to take this project off the rails and it would create global disaster. Paul will say later in Romans 8 that creation is yearning to be free from a bondage to decay. We feel that bondage to decay, don't we? And in that moment when God created that man and filled him with life and knowing that all of the pain that he would cause, that guy, God knew at that moment that he would step into history in the person of Jesus and take the brunt on himself. And he still did it. Knowing that he would suffer more than any of us. Knowing that he would deal with more pain and more agony. Because think for just a minute. He's not taking on himself just the pain of the cross. If that was it, that would be bad enough. I mean, none of us have even begun to experience pain like cross pain. I mean, the Romans took this weird, sick pleasure in making it as stunningly painful and horrific as possible. Like, we've got the whole no cruel and unusual punishment thing, they said the more cruel it is, the better. The more unusual it is, the better it fits our purposes. So strip them naked, beat them to within an inch of their life, and hang them on a stick outside the city for a few days and see if people still want to mess with us. If that was all it is, it would have been the mercies of God unimaginably to us. And yet it's more than that because Jesus in his death takes the consequences, not just of my sin, but yours. And not just yours, but everyone in the river region. And not just our region, but the nation. And not just the nation, but the world. And not just the world now, but the world forever. So when you take, just for a moment, the sheer magnitude, the infinite nature of the blackness of human sin. I mean, just take for a moment and think of the atrocities and the horrors that have been perpetrated throughout the world. Jesus steps into history and takes the judgment against all of that on himself. The judge takes the penalty. You ever met a judge who takes the penalty? I mean, imagine a courtroom situation. There's somebody who deserves, you know, 20 life sentences or something. Occasionally you'll read a news article about somebody who gets 20 life sentences or something like that. Imagine in that instance a judge stepping down off the bench, taking off the black robe, going over to the bailiff and saying, you're free to go, I'll take the consequences for you. That would make headlines. And it will never happen. But it did. Once. on a hill called Golgotha outside of Jerusalem when the judge of all the world allowed his arms to be spread in perfect love for the world he had made that had broken his heart. 
judge in that moment took the full weight of the penalty of my transgressions and yours on himself. Why? Because he always does whatever it takes to do what is right. Even if it means bleeding. And in that moment, a child of Abraham saved the world. In that moment, Abraham's family, one of Abraham's children, blessed the nations. And in that moment, God condemned sin. The catch-22 was only an apparent catch-22. The problem appeared to be a very serious problem, and yet God has a solution. And his solution is named Jesus. And the benefits of Jesus' faithfulness, because that's what, I mean, Jesus embodies the faithfulness of God, doesn't he? Jesus embodies the righteousness of God and the benefits of his faithfulness, the, the forgiveness that comes, the, the righteous declaration that you are pardoned, you are free, you are forgiven, you are reconciled to God. All of that comes simply through trusting. Not doing something, not sort of, all right, God, I know I owe you a few because I've made a real mess of things, but I'm going to work real hard, I'm going to get myself to church a few times, and I'll throw a little money in the basket on my way out the door, and I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'll leave and they'll clean up after the service or something, that, you know, I know I've done wrong by you, and I'm going to try to, we cannot justify ourselves. We can do all of those things, and when we stand before Jesus, none of it avails to anything. One thing, friends, one thing, trust Him. Trust Him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. None of us have the power to do what he does. None of us can take this catch-22 and fix it. Only Jesus can do that. And when Scripture talks about faith, it's not this sort of, well, I'm going to have a little more faith, so God will be pleased with me. That's not, we're not turning faith into a work. Faith is saying, I can't do it, Jesus. I need you to do it for me. I trust you. What's God's purpose in this? The purpose goes back to the Abraham story, doesn't it? He doesn't suffer <laughs> just to sort of wipe the slates clean and so we can not have to worry about what happens to us when we die. That's a benefit, but it's not the point. The point goes all the way back to that first promise. Hey, Abraham, I want to use your family to bless the nations. 
God's purpose in sending, in coming, not just in coming in Jesus, is to extend the blessings of his father Abraham to all of us. God is just, he condemns sin, and he is the justifier, he forgives sin. And he does it so that we can become the sort of people who represent him well. The sort of people who have joy and hope and bounty and abundance for our neighbors and for the nations. There's a lot of material in Romans after chapter 3. And if you keep reading, you discover that the forgiveness that comes through Jesus isn't the end of the story. It's an instrument to accomplish God's purposes. And God's purposes is to make a holy people. Romans 6. And then to use that holy people to bless the world. Romans 8. That's what he's up to. That's what he's after. And he'll do whatever it takes in us to make us the kind of people who can faithfully embody his redeeming, reconciling, holy love. I can't imagine that some of us are not feeling the weight of our guilt. We think about the people we've let down. We think about the people we've hurt. We think about the shame we carry. Romans 3 says, Jesus accepts you with all of that. And he loves you despite it. And if he doesn't heap shame and guilt on you, you ought not heap it on yourself. See, that's one of the ways that we are hindered from living into his purposes. God can't use someone like me. God can't do anything with someone who's done the things I've done. This doctrine of justification that says God says you're right, you're in the right, I find in your favor, your sins are forgiven, means that God takes us, all of us, with all of the dead weight, the darkness that we bring, and he sets us free to be his people be his representatives, to be his agents of blessing. It's crucial, friends, to set our eyes on the righteousness of God. We need a fresh vision of the fact that God always does what is right. Because frankly, we don't get that vision anywhere else, do we? <laughs> No one else 
always does what is right, even if it means suffering. And when we set our eyes on that vision, that's what we are called. Look to Jesus who reveals the righteousness of God, who reveals the consistency of his character, how he does what he must do to do what ought to be done. In these days of anxiety and days of sickness and days of ups and downs and global ang just angst, eyes on Jesus. His character is consistent. His love is perfect. His faithfulness is unquestioned. Eyes on Jesus, friends. And you will find yourself your eyes are on Jesus, that you will live into this vocation to be a blessing to your family, to your church, to your co-workers, to your culture, and yes, to the nations. But we can't live into that we can't see God's righteous character. Eyes on Jesus. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.